welcome back. Welcome back to you. Welcome back to me. Welcome back to everyone who's listening. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. I think it might be time to, now that we have officially gone to 100 Twitter followers, dub our fans something. I was thinking workers. <laughs> it's got, that's too generic. That's just like a the hair workers. too generic. Oh, okay. Well, we'll think of something. I feel like heads should be involved in one way or another too, like given the community that we're in like WP heads or something like that. That's also probably a little bit too generic, but if you've got an idea, let us know. Yeah, seriously. Give us a shout. If you have a good idea for what you think are, are uh, meager, but growing and passionate audience should be called. <laughs> so today uh, we're going to be talking about the grateful dead's show from Tuesday, September 10th, 1991 at Madison square garden. This is the first time I think that we did not say this in our last episode. We figured it out in the intervening period. This is going to be the second straight episode where we don't know what episode, what show we're talking about uh, for our next episode. So just bear with us. We did say on Twitter that we were going to be talking about this show. So if you follow us on Twitter, at Working Man's Pod, then you would have gotten the dope. You would have gotten the skinny. The inside scoop. Right, and the same will be true for our next show. We'll we'll let you know what show we're going to be talking about in our next episode on Twitter, but not at the end of this episode, unfortunately. Got to plan it out a little bit. We know what the one after that's going to be, but not the very next one. Today is a great show from 1991, but before we talk about that show, Dave, I think it's only right that we talk about the days between. There were days There were days There were days between What's been going on in your days between? Not too much because we recorded this so close to our um, last episode that came out with Grateful Seconds. And again, a big thank you for him, uh, to him for sticking around with us and, and doing that interview. I think the big thing is to, we've teased it on Instagram and you posted that excellent Bill Belichick announcement on Twitter. But tomorrow night we will be in Cincinnati, Ohio for Dead & Company. So to go behind the curtain for a second, we are... We can't record this the same day we release it. We got to do some editing, you know, put in the samples, all that stuff. So we're actually recording this before the Dead & Co. tour of 2022 has begun. I'm really excited to hear that first show, to watch the live stream of the first show at Dodger Stadium. Our friend Nick is going to be there in the flesh. That's very exciting. So pumped for him. Yeah, that's going to be so cool. It is. And so the tour will be well underway by the time this episode comes out. I hope that they're playing as well as they were last year, although that might be a big ask because 2021 Dead & Co. I would imagine that a lot of those shows will be added to like commercial streaming services like Apple and Spotify in the coming months. The way to find them now is on the archive or Nugs if you have that. But if you haven't listened to 2021 Dead & Co., they were playing really, really well. So maybe check that out. But yeah, we're going to be together in Cincinnati That'll be great. We'll probably do a little WP and 30 bonus episode about that show. Yeah, I can't wait for that. So my days between, I went to my college reunion at the St. Bonaventure University uh, <laughs> in St. Bonaventure, New York. So for those of you who don't know, aka 99% of you, that is on the southern tier of New York. So you, if you can picture kind of the shape of New York State, it 
juts out across the top of Pennsylvania, and that part that's above Pennsylvania is known as the Southern Tier. And you go up from there to Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester, the cities that are on the Great Lakes, and you've got, you know, upstate New York. Very surprisingly heady weekend up there. First of all, on my first day at school on Saturday, I was walking around there in the afternoon and heard, of all things, doing that rag, just blasting from someone's speaker. What? I know. And that is such a specific song that I was like, okay, there's one of two options here. Either whoever's playing this is a deadhead or they're listening to the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius because they're a deadhead and this just like shuffled on. I don't know which it was. It could have gone either way, but they were intentionally listening to 60s Dead. And so my wife was minorly mortified. I went to a really small school. St. Bonaventure is the smallest school in Division One, So everyone, we're all kind of like, you know, treat each other like family. So I felt no shame whatsoever going up and being like, what's going on? You guys are heads? What's happening here? And the, guy, the main guy was very excited to tell me that he was like, yeah, man, just listen to the dead, drinking some beers. They gave me one of the finest blue lights available. It's Labatt blue light to the uninitiated. And we talked about the dead for a couple minutes while my wife went inside and uh, got changed to go for a run. And then that night, we went to one of the bars in town, the Hickey Tavern, shout out to them. And there was a really good band playing. They were a three-piece band with a guitar, an organ, and a drummer. And uh, when I walked in, they were playing Loose Lucy. No way. And so, yeah, so I was like, this is awesome. I I was not expecting this. And the guy standing right next to them was wearing a Phil and Friends hat and a Terrapin Station shirt. So I started talking to him for a while. And yeah, just a lot of of deadheads. So I was remarking on that to my friend, Joe. Shout out to you, Joe, if you're listening, who is from um, Oswego, New York now lives in Rochester and he was like you got to think about it man like this is a heady part of the country like there are all these legendary dead shows in this part of the state whether Watkins Glen Colgate Cornell Buffalo all the good Rochester shows they played in Syracuse all the time a couple at Harper's College in Binghamton yeah right that show too that's true um and then also not too far from obviously New York City but also not super far from even Boston, Hartford, Pittsburgh is drivable, Cleveland is drivable, Philly is drivable. So a lot of the people up there saw a lot of dead shows, I'm sure, back in the day. So that was a very pleasant surprise. Shout out to my alma mater, go Bonnies, and uh, go all of the Bonnies deadheads that I saw over the weekend. Um, I mean, anyway, should we get into the show? Mm-hmm. Let's go. Tuesday, September 10th, 1991, The Grateful Dead played at Madison Square Garden. This is our first entree into the Vince era of The Grateful Dead. Uh, Vince Welnick, the last pianist that played for The Grateful Dead, the last keyboardist, he joined the band after Brent Midland died. We talked about that in our episode about the RFK show from 1990. So that happened in August of 1990. 
And then they, the dead did an audition process where they, you know, tried out a bunch of different piano players. I think all of whom were local to the San Francisco area uh, because they tried to recruit Bruce Hornsby into the band. And he basically said, I would love to, and I can help you kind of bridge the gap, but I got my own thing going on. 1986, Bruce Hornsby and the range released the album, the way it is which is a tremendous, tremendous album. If, if you have not listened to it, I'm sure many of you have. But uh, The Way It Is is the main single off that album, the big hit song. And then that was, I think that song has been remade famous a few times, for me most notably by Tupac uh, in his song Changes that covers uh, The Way It Is, which is an, a great song too. But also Mandolin Rain was a legit hit from that album and the lead song on the western skyline i think is really really good every little kiss was another single that came out from that album that was a hit so bruce hornsby had like a nice career going for himself by the late 80s he had also joined up with a bunch of other artists to you know whether recording just in the studio um or playing piano on hit songs some of the people that he worked with in the late 80s you've got huey lewis Bonnie Raitt, Bob Dylan, Robbie Robertson, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Stevie Nicks. I mean, he was everywhere throughout the late 80s. And so he had opened for the Grateful Dead in the late 80s a couple times with The Range. And so they, I think that they all respected him as a musician. How can you not? He's an amazing piano player. And they asked if he would be the guy, but he was like, I got my own touring. I've got my own studio work that I want to keep going with. So again, basically I can help you out, but you need to find a guy. So they found Vince Welnick, who was, I think his most successful venture before the dead was with the tubes, a band from the seventies. And I don't think that they were shy about the fact that they liked the fact that he could hit the high notes on their songs too, and basically fill in for Brent's vocal part of the songs. They didn't really have to rework much to get him in. Now, some have opined that if they would have gone in a completely different direction it might have changed things dramatically in the history of the grateful dead because that creative effort to rethink things to rework what they were doing to kind of start fresh might have kind of lit them up a little bit more than just kind of continuing to go in the same direction as they had been with brent but with in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, a less talented piano player, less unique singer. Brent had a pretty unique voice. Um, And also just a less forceful part within the band. Like Brent had a bunch of Brent songs that had been on Grateful Dead albums at this point. You know, he was a legitimate voice in the band. And so I I don't know. I I think that I'll, I've, I've heard this said before that things kind of started to get stale in the Vince era. That's kind of what's going on throughout the 90s. But this period in 1991, we are pretty much exactly one year into this era with Bruce and Vince. Things are still fresh. Things are still new. And um, I'm, I'll just say this off the bat. I think that this is a tremendous Grateful Dead show. It's so awesome. But you're... You're omitting, I think, on purpose, one of the biggest reasons why it's so awesome. Well, yeah, definitely. So uh, who composed the band this night? As I said, you got the, the main guys that you'd expect. Billy, Mickey, 
Bobby, Jerry, and Phil. Then you've got the two men on the keys that I was talking about. Vince, he's playing synth, you know, an electronic keyboard and organ. Bruce is playing a piano until the encore, and then he switches it up and gets really weird. And then special guest for the night, Branford Marsalis on the saxophone. So I'm sure if you're listening to the show, you're deep enough in the dead that you've heard their amazing show that was mostly with Branford Marsalis at the Nassau Coliseum in 1990. It's been commercially released as Wake Up to Find Out, I think, is the name of that album. It's on every streaming platform that you might use. It's a great record. One of the best eyes of the worlds you'll ever hear. Definitely check that out if you haven't heard it. But this show, this was the third time Branford had sat in with the band, and it's the first time he played the entire show with them. And man, he fits in like a finger in a glove. I mean, just, just perfect. Uh, Branford Marsalis, born in New Orleans. He was the oldest son of jazz saxophonist Ellis Marsalis, a legendary musical family from New Orleans. He has three brothers that are successful jazz musicians, all play different instruments, trumpet, trombone, and drums, in addition to Branford playing sax. He began his career as a touring sax player in the early 80s and then received national acclaim by the mid-80s with the Branford Marsalis Quartet. Then he started to branch out pretty dramatically at that point. He's He was in a couple of Spike Lee films in the late 80s and then after the show a year later when when jay leno took over as the host of the tonight show for johnny carson branford marsalis was the original band leader for the tonight show for a few years he sat in with the dead five times over their tour or over their history he sat in with a bunch of dead related groups since then including most recently dead and company for two nights in 2018 but like i said this was the first that he played the whole show would you have thought that it was the first that he'd played the whole show based on his performance? I mean, based on his playing, it sounds like he's been playing with them for two or three years. <laughs> I he's know. locked in. It's I, amazing. I would not. No, I, I didn't know that. And I would not have guessed that. I mean, I, I would have guessed. I knew it was his third show with the band. I would have guessed that he played the whole show the entire t- other two. Yeah. It's, I mean, he kills it. Okay, so that's kind of the stage. That's the players. That's who's in the band on this great night in Grateful Dead history. What's going on at this moment in time, September 10th, 1991? The top album in the land, Metallica's self-titled album, a.k.a. the Black Album. It's one of the best-selling albums of the 90s, and for good reason. Enter Sandman is the track one, which is a great song but also Nothing Else Matters and The Unforgiven. I remember my dad had this CD when I was a kid. I used to listen to it a lot. Top Billboard song, Everything I Do, I Do For You. Brian Adams song. Uh, That is, uh, I mean, you know, good little soft rock song. Yeah, that's appropriate. Yep. Um, The rest of the songs in the top 10 are all R&B songs. So kind of a sign of the times, the early 90s. Grunge had not taken the scene yet. This is actually the same day that Smells Like Teen Spirit was released, September 10th, 91. Wow. Okay, cool. And just two weeks exactly to the day after Pearl Jam released their debut album, 10. 10, yeah. Which I think is their best album. So grunge was on the horizon. It was coming. Sub Pop was about to take the world by storm. But in this day, it was still R&B's world and everyone else was living in it. The highest rated rock song on the Billboard charts was Shiny Happy People by R.E.M. So that's that's what's going on on the charts. Birthdays from September 10th. 
I just mentioned my beloved alma mater, St. Bonaventure University, while our most famous alumni, Bob Lanier, who just recently passed away. September 10th is his birthday. Dave, our shared alma mater, Wake Forest. Arnold Palmer's birthday is on September 10th, 1991. Hey, look at that. He had a birthday on September 10th, 91. He was not born in 91. All in the music world, the most famous person who's born on September 10th, Big Daddy Kane. And in uh in acting, you got Colin Firth. And in sports, a man eh, I wouldn't say near and dear to our hearts, but a man who has been in our hearts at some point in light in our lives, Randy Johnson. Former Yankee, so I think that counts in our hearts. Yeah, I mean terrible as a Yankee, but a former Yankee nonetheless. <laughs> the big unit. What about the year for the Grateful Dead? What a year it was for the Grateful Dead. How about the highest grossing touring act in the world in 1991? Whoa. The Grateful Dead. That is right. You heard it correctly. Here's a quote from uh, an LA Times article from January of 1992. The Dead tops this year's roster with a gross of $34.7 million from 76 concerts in 27 cities. That's an impressive figure, especially when compared to the number two act, ZZ Top, which needed 106 shows to gross $24.7 million. Wow. So the Dead played 30 fewer shows and grossed $10 million more than ZZ Top, which is, I mean, it, it really is quite impressive. Yeah, that's, wow. In today's dollars, do you want to guess how much $34.7 million would be? In 91... Um, I'll guess 58 million. Pretty close. Uh, it's pretty much double. So it would be about 70 million. A lot of money. Whole lot of money. A lot of money. (laughs) This reminds me, I think I've maybe have told this anecdote before, but in one of the Grateful Dead books I've read, there's a story about when Vince joined the group, he was like very poor. He was like a, a true starving artist and he asked how much money he made and Jerry said, you make $1,000 a day. And he said, okay, so if we are supposed to play 20 more shows this year, and he was like, no, 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 you make $1,000 per day of the year. <laughs> he was like, oh, all right, cool. So um, that is interesting to me too, that apparently all of the band members, that was their salary. So I don't know where the rest of this money went to. Maybe they got bonuses, I guess, at the end of the year or, you know. I guess it's very expensive to hold their tours too. Road crew, right. Um, yeah. You know, some volunteers helping to work the venues, all that. But isn't that just like the mf of the music industry that, you know, these are the guys who are making the music and there are six of them times 360,000. That's like, you know, $2 million and they gross 34 million, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. And it, like, I mean, it wasn't that case at the time today some of that gross would have gone to Ticketmaster fees and some you know ceo making money off the ticket sales itself right and if it had been you know 30 years before and they were on motown they would have been making like two dollars and motown would have been making all of it (laughs) so it could always be better it could always be worse i suppose but i mean that's the big headline for the dead in 91 they were the they were the biggest touring act in the world they had a spring tour down the East Coast, then they went out to Vegas and California. Their summer tour was all over, I mean, really everywhere, Kansas, um, Colorado, all up and down the East Coast from Florida to um, 
to upstate New York. Uh, the, at the end of the 91 summer tour, the band had an intervention with Jerry. Apparently things were getting kind of bad. And so he spent a month at a methadone clinic um, in July of 91. So no shows in July. And then in August, they played a few shows at the Cal Expo and then the following weekend at Shoreline. And then they were back at it for this short fall tour that we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, they had Bruce Hornsby in the fold for basically the whole year. He played most of the Grateful Dead shows that he played in were in 91. He also played some in 90 and some in 92, but not after 92. So he played in total 106 shows with the Dead, and most were in this year, in 91. According to the book So Many Roads, Bruce Hornsby only had three days off in 1991 between touring dates and studio obligations. Oh Hard working man. Goodness, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another, sadly, uh, event in the Grateful Dead's history that happened in 1991 was uh, the death of Bill Graham. So, you know, a lot of people, I kind of identify him as the sixth member or seventh member, you know, what have you, of the Grateful Dead because of how influential he was in booking them in San Francisco in their early days and kind of, you know, helping them with marketing, things like that. He died in a helicopter crash on October 25th. And then the dead played a benefit for him after that. So uh, that was a, a pretty big moment, I think, in the band's history that happened in the fall of 91. Okay, so that's the year. What about this tour? This this was part of the fall 1991 tour. It was just 18 dates across only three locations. The dead did a lot of this type of touring in this era. I mean, I said 76 shows in 27 cities. That's because pretty much everywhere they played, it was at the very least very least two nights more commonly it was three four in this case this run at msg was nine nine shows oh my gosh Mm -hmm. so the first stop of this 18 date tour was the richfield coliseum in richfield ohio that was for three nights wednesday through friday then on sunday they started a run at the at the garden from sunday september 8th through wednesday september 18th they played nine shows in 11 nights. And then the last stop was the Boston Garden for six shows in seven nights, which concluded on Thursday, September 26th. Between the 18 shows, they sold 304,000 tickets and netted, netted an estimated $7 million in ticket sales alone. So a large chunk of that big, big uh, figure that, that we you know read came from this tour. Also, interestingly to me, these Boston Garden shows, I've heard more than one deadhead refer to as the last great run of shows in the Grateful Dead's history. There's a story in that same book that I mentioned earlier, So Many Roads, about one of the nights at the Boston Garden. I don't know which one. I should go listen to all of the first sets and see which one it is. Bruce Hornsby was playing like super aggressively because he was like, the band is just flat, this sucks and so like i'm gonna bring up the energy to like get them to play it and then they were backstage at the set break and he was like all you know piss and vinegar and went to jerry's section of the backstage and was basically like what the fuck are you doing like you're you're not giving it to these fans and it's embarrassing and uh jerry apparently had pneumonia and was like didn't say that to him but was just kind of like I guess the quote apparently that Hornsby relayed to the author that stuck with him was, he's like, you didn't understand 20 years of burnout, man. So, I mean, that's pretty tough. They had been road dogs for so long playing 
you know, 70 plus shows with the dead plus the same number, if not more on their side projects year in and year out for so long. I'm sure they were super worn down at this point. You would not know it based on how great they were playing this night though. All right. Last, last couple things before we get into the set list itself, the venue and the show, the venue, Madison square garden, the Mecca, the garden, MSG, the world's most famous arena. The concert capacity at the time of this show was 18,000. The dead obviously sold out all nine shows. They played at the garden 52 times throughout their career from the first time they played. It was in 1979 and the last was in 1994. They had plans to play there again in the fall of 95, I believe, but then, you know, they didn't exist by then. This is, uh, it was opened in 1968. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with New York city or the garden, it's right above Penn station in midtown Manhattan. And it's the oldest sports arena in New York city today. It has hosted, I mean, just literally everybody. Like, you name them, if they're a big act, they've been at the Garden. Honestly, you name them and they're a smaller act, they might have played there too. <laughs> like, just about everyone has. Few have owned that place like the Dead have, though. And um, if you're looking for evidence of that, here are some moments of recognition that they've had at the Garden. They were awarded the Golden Ticket Award. They're one of the few bands that's been awarded both the Golden Ticket Award and the Platinum Ticket Award. And they're one of an even smaller number of acts that have been honored on the Madison Square Garden Walk of Fame. Three mm. bands or, you know, live acts. Grateful Dead, George Harrison, and you think of the third? Oh, it's um it's gotta be Billy Joel. So when I asked that, I thought he's going to say Billy Joel because well, that's I mean, like the obvious answer. Yeah. And that would make so much sense. It's surprisingly not him though. It's the Rolling Stones. Oh, okay. Billy Joel would make a lot more sense. He's a New York guy. He's a New York guy. And I think he like makes a point to sell out MSG. You know, I mean, eight he, times a year. Yeah. And everything in New York, there's a great live concert video of him at Yankee stadium. It was like the first show mm-hmm. they ever did at Yankee stadium. So yeah, I mean, that would make a lot of sense, but legendary venue, the dead did it like, literally like no one else so what about this show it was i mean a great show here's here's a nice little nugget for you dave i'll put this link in the show notes our good friend grateful seconds we gave him a shout out earlier this episode he called this show the dead's best of the 1990s wow i wow yeah so it's a great article there's uh, as there always are in dave's in dave davis's articles a lot of like the news stories from around the time and things like that. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Check it out. It's great. Deadbase agrees. So he that's one of the things in his article. And in the compendium for 1991, this was the most popular show in both of these categories. Favorite tape and the show they most regret missing for people who weren't there. Oh, very cool. So word spread about this show. Yeah. It was released on the 30 Trips Around the Sun box set as you know one of the shows from 1991 or sorry, the show from 1991. And also there's a couple of multi-camera concert videos available on YouTube. So check those out. It's cool to see the band at this time. It's Bob in his short, short period. So that's great stuff. You got Vince wearing his finest Dan Flash's shirt and uh, Jerry in the black (laughs) tee. So it's good stuff. All right. So anything else? Oh, one thing I didn't uh, note that I, I wanted to. So 1991, like I said, Dave said that this was his favorite show of the nineties. A lot of heads say that this was kind of the last great year or the last like standout run even was the one right after this MSG run. 
So only six of the 76 shows from 1991 have been released in full by the Grateful Dead. And it's been, there's three nights at Giant Stadium. All three have been released, two in a Giant Stadium box set and one in a download series. There's Dick's Picks Volume 17 from the following week in Boston. There is uh, this show, as I said, on the 30 Trips Around the Sun box set. And then View from the Vault 2, an official DVD, was also uh, released as a CD and a DVD. And we mentioned that one earlier because the RFK show that we talked about in 1990 was added to the end of that video. So 1991 is the latest Grateful Dead year where there are multiple live releases aside from the 30 Trips box set where they released one show from every year. So basically 92, 3, 4, and 5, if there even is a full show that's been released outside of 30 Trips, it's just one. Mm. And 91, you got six. So I think that that speaks to the fact that the band was playing really well throughout the year. There's also an interesting thing going on here where you have like like Phil as forceful as he is and as great a bass as he is, he's not a band leader. Jerry is like the band leader. And Bob is doing some band leader shit throughout this show, and I dig it. Mm-hmm. And yep. Bruce Hornsby is a legit band leader as well. And so I think that you have some like decisive people who are like, you know, really steering the ship. And it's a big ship. It is not going to stop like on a dime with two drummers, two guys on keys, two guitarists, and a bassist, let alone add a saxophone player. Right. But they could do it in this era and in this year. It's really impressive. So I think that, that all of that stuff about this year is what makes it you know, really good and interesting. I'm so glad that we listened to this show. And I'll be excited to come back. And you know, maybe our next one from 91 will be from that uh, Boston Garden run. Yeah. But anyway... Let's talk about this show, the reason why we're here. Let's uh let's get into it. Set one opens with Shakedown Street. Where does where does Shakedown rank for you among show openers? I mean, middle of the pack, but they usually don't have a saxophone. Okay, fair point. <laughs> so, okay, so tell me tell me everything then. <laughs> what did you think about this version? <laughs> this version was so incredible. I, there's. You got the happy piano that hits you first. You get that classic guitar tone that you even hear today on Dead & Company. But man, the addition of the saxophone just elevates it to the stratosphere. Like that funk disco never sounded so good. Oh my goodness. It's it's, It's so smooth. Yeah, it's great. I'm... I really liked what you said about the piano in the beginning because what Hornsby's doing like off the rip in this song, it's him and it's Phil's bass, which you can hear really clearly in the beginning of this song. Phil is just like funking it up. And Bruce is like, you know, like you said, it's smooth, but it's fun and just flowery and vibrant what he's playing on the piano. It just gets you off to a great start. And 
my, my second note that I wrote down was, does it sound busy with all of these musicians on stage at times? Yes. But at other times it really does not at all. And that's kind of amazing. It is amazing. It, this wasn't one of the songs that sounded crowded. It was the word that I used, but I, I didn't get that five in, in shakedown. There were a couple moments for me in the beginning when they're trying, still trying to figure it out. Like the very beginning is great. And then like the, like, like one and a half, two minute, two and a half minute mark. There's like a little bit, I mean, and fairly so this is a song that Brantford has never played before. He's figuring it out for the first time. And so like, you know, they're starting to figure it out. And then right around the three thirty mark, Jerry, Bruce and Brantford start this like three man weave that is just like perfect. And then they like do not let up for the rest of the 13 minutes of this song. I mean, by, I wrote down 10 minute mark. Everyone is sufficiently warmed up. And this is just a fantastic segment of music on the video. You can actually see Bruce stands up around eight 30. It's like really watch what everyone's doing. And he is just getting into it. It's awesome. He's, so cool. Yeah. He's looking around the stage <laughs> at everyone and trying to like, you know, kind of take cues from them and it sounds great. And then at the 1130 range, even with all the other sound going on, Jerry and Bob together, are playing like what they're doing together is so good. Like as good as it gets between those two guys, it's like they find in all the chaos around them, they find this little (laughs) lane where they're really just working well together. Like they always have. And it's just tremendous. This is one of my favorite shakedown streets I've ever heard. Same. Totally same. Number six on heady version. And you bet this is a top 10 version. Oh yeah. That is well-deserved. Speaking of Jerry, I, I thought he sounded good vocally too. I thought he he sounded crisp and to like punctuate it when he you know ended the second verse that I can hear it beat out loud. I mean the crowd ate it right up, but he nailed that. He he was he was sharp vocally. Hell yeah, he was. He sounds great throughout this entire show. It's like yeah. it's it's weird. He sounds so much better than he did in 1990. Yeah, like. like a substantial improvement. It, yeah, it's bizarre, but hey, I don't know. I mean, maybe that month of cleaning up. I think by the end of this fall, he was he was back on the back on the smack. <laughs> unfortunately, but you know, maybe that helped. It gave, probably gave, did. Gave yeah. himself a little break from it. I don't know. I I don't know the reasons why. I, I just know that he sounds great. So next. I think when we looked at this set list together, the next two songs you were not super familiar with. I had never heard the song track three. The next two songs is kind of a melody. You get CC Rider into It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. It's basically the same backing music to both. It's just, you know, Bobby singing the first half and Jerry singing the second half. Um, what did you think of this little blue suite that we get after Yeah, Shantan? I mean, and I mean, the reason we're doing this show, right? The number one CC writer on Heady version. Is it? It is. Yep. It's it's at the top, baby. Wow. No, I, I mean, that's not why we're doing this show. In all seriousness, though, this this CC writer is super tight musically. You kind of touched on it the same structure. These are 12-bar blues structured songs, which is a, a staple in the blues community. And... Uh, yeah, who said the blues can't use a little saxophone? They give they give it like room to go all the way with a full on sax solo and and he he crushes it. Lyrically, this is not one of my favorite songs. I don't like that, you know, every third syllable is the sound C. 
but <laughs> musically the cc writer i thought was really really tight what about you i agree i think musically it's unimpeachable like lyrically and song selection wise it can be impeached but I mean, that's not really what we're here for. This is not my favorite of the Bobby Blues offerings. I see why it's number one on Heady version among CC Riders because it's excellent. And what Bramford and Bruce are doing in the background is tremendous. His, this is what I wrote down about Bramford's playing. It sounds like a cool house cat stretching out and getting comfy in a sunspot on a lazy afternoon. And then around the four minute mark, he goes into this, the solo that you mentioned. And it's just like, whoa (laughs) like he this is a jazz saxophonist and he just did that in a blues song like right like really really incredible how he switched genres and and went right into blues and then what is that solo followed by how about a really good bluesy slide guitar solo from bob really good i noted that this is the hands down the best i've ever heard bob on slide guitar there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that it's the best I've ever heard him sound on the slide guitar. He sounds great. This is a really tight solo. And for him to match the energy that Branford comes at in his solo is, yeah, I mean, really gl- impressive. Absolutely. Glowing endorsement for Bob's slide. Really great stuff from Bobby. Also, Vince's organ below Jerry's soloing around the two-minute range is its pretty nice. It adds to what Jerry's doing, I think. And, I mean, overall, I, I just thought this was a good song. I think that part of it, why I like it a lot, is it really benefits from It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. That song is really nice, and it's a nice accompaniment to CC Rider, where by the t- you're, like, really tired of the C, CCC, CCC. <laughs> And then Jerry comes on with his soulful blues voice, especially at this point in his life. And you're just like, oh, yeah, give give me that good Jerry blues. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they go right into it. Um, They dive right in. It's a fantastic blues song. Bob sounded great on the slide guitar and CC Rider. I thought of all the set one songs, this was the best Bob on the rhythm. I think both one because of the mix. Mm -hmm. All right. Because it sounded crisper but too just the way he was crushing this song yeah bob likes the blues oh yeah so yeah he, he does he does really well on this this is an interesting song i had not heard it before this show and i had I, never ever heard of this song yeah i hadn't heard of it i i will say i might have seen its name in passing but i not that i really remembered they played it once in 1973 and then not again until spring 91 they only played it uh seven times total that once in 73 and then six times throughout 91 and 92 always kind of mashed into CC Rider because like you were saying 12 bar blues song it can just roll right in a lot of the music is pretty much the same between one song and the next and it's the number two version on heady version out of those seven number one being that 73 
I listened to the 73 version. I think that it's good. I I would honestly say I like this one better, maybe because of the sax. So, you know, one man's opinion. So after the blues medley, we get Black-Throated Wind. What did you think about this about this song? I had two thoughts. The very the first time I listened to this, I was a little bummed. The piano drowns out the guitar riff at the beginning, which stinks because that guitar riff is so great and it's like a stark contrast. We just got you know done listening to all the Europe seventy two shows for the fiftieth anniversary. So when the you know when the guitar is leading the charge in those versions, it it, it felt off. It kind of felt wrong. After listening to it a couple more times, once this song gets going, it's actually quite a fun rejuvenation and reimagination of the song. I, I got in after a while, and the last two minutes of the song are rock solid. Yeah, I actually, my thoughts are like identical pretty much. I think that the first three minutes, Branford doesn't really know what to, how to fit into the song. And so that like, bump 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 like that way that it's like him and vince and bob are all doing the exact same thing and it kind of sounds like a crappy wedding band honestly <laughs> and so that part is kind of tough but yeah then that goes away and especially the last two minutes are really really i thought good but i i agree I, this one took me like a couple of listens to get on board with and even like going into the last listen that I did of it, I was like, man, I'm kind of sad that I've got to listen to this again. I'm not a fan of this version, but the the last two minutes I think are really, really good. And as a result, kind of on balance, it's a, a version that I liked. Yeah. In, in those last two minutes to really touch on them, the drumming is top tier. And then the sax interplay with, with Phil on the bass. I mean, that that was just really, really strong. And then I, I don't know what you thought of him. As, as long as Bob stayed out of the falsetto range, he sounded really good. It, when he did it the first time in the chorus, I was like, oh, yikes. But as long as he stayed low, he, he sounded great here. Yeah, Bob's falsetto moments throughout the show, not his high points. He did have a lot of high points in this show. Those were just not them. He did, right? <laughs> Not, not it for yeah, Bob. Nah. Uh, okay, so uh, from Black Throated Wind, we get a song that we've talked about a few times lately, uh, High Time. So, I mean, Jerry just sounds really great singing this song. I think that that kind of makes this version. His voice sounds really good for it. Branford, kind of like Black Throated Wind, he gets more comfortable as the song goes on. It's like in the beginning, he kind of just like, I don't think he like is really with it and then he picks it up and by the end his what he's doing is just like really additive to the whole texture of what they're doing which i mean i feel like it's true with pretty much every song on this but yeah i thought that on this one you know short but sweet and jerry singing was the the high point for me do you want to guess what ranked version this is on heady version They played this song for a long time. Um, 13. It's number four. Wow. Yeah, Ooh. this is a top five version. A lot I, of love. It's fantastic. I think the sax 
adds to this song like you talked about in the second half i was a little surprised it was that high but it it's it's up there especially when i think it was introduced in 69 so i mean it, it was in the the sets for a long while that's i mean that's cool though this is a good version it's interesting the the way that the sax adds to songs that you'd expect it to like work really well with like shakedown it's like okay that's obvious the sax is gonna sound great on this or like dark star or like slipknot even where it's like yeah i could see how the sax would sound really cool on that the songs the jerry ballads like this one and standing on the moon what the sax adds to those songs was a little bit more unexpected for me and just really adds to the whole like I, I don't know the overall just texture, the overall DNA of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Same with the song that closes set one, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Before we get to that song, the second to last song, the penultimate song of set one, Cassidy. I feel like you're going to tell me that this one's very high on heady version too, because the things that Bruce is doing on this song are quite good. I have, I'm on the record. I'm not a Cassidy head. And man, I mean, Bruce is like crushing this song. Some of the yeah. best piano work that he has in all of set one, I think. I agree with you. But we're we're both not like the biggest fans of Cassidy, but I was digging this version. It's we got to put it into context first. There's 225 ranked versions of this song. I mean, how how many times have they played this song? I mean, got to be over 225. Got to be over 250, right? Yeah, 339. Yeah. Okay. So this is ranked number 34. Okay, Which so of the top ten percent of the ranked versions put it puts it right at the fifteen percent line, you know, of total top ten percent. Yeah, I, I mean, I would have it a little bit higher, but again, I'm not like, I'm not like I said, I'm not a Cassidy head. I'm I'm not. I should not be the judge or jury of what makes a great Cassidy. I just really loved what Bruce was doing on the keys. I really liked what Phil and the drummers were doing. They were holding it down really nicely throughout this song, and the jam in the back half is really good and then the way that this was something that stood out in this song to me and you can really see it in the video too the way that bob brings them all back for that last lyric like kind of on a dime with that many musicians is really impressive because like they're on it when he gives them the signal and he he like kind of like gives them a very subtle signal and then he steps up to the mic and four beats later it's like boom last line and it i mean i thought that was pretty cool and that's why i was saying like bob is doing some band leader shit throughout the show <laughs> um you know whether it's his ripping slide solo in cc rider or you know that moment in cassidy good job bob all right last song of the set the one that i mentioned just a second ago i think that the sax adds in a spectacular way is deal 
one of our favorites, a, a rock inversion here. I, I mean, just sit back and relax and enjoy the deal. Yes, do that. But also, would you have thought that this would be a song that like a sax would really add to? No, because this is such a a keys friendly song. Mm-hmm. Like the keys just usually elevate this. I I did not expect hear. the and they do here, right. I did not expect the sax to do the same. Yeah, but it it sounds I mean really interesting. It's so cool. He yeah. like doesn't really know what to do in the beginning. It's a theme. I've been I've, this is like the third song I've said that for and it's fair. I mean, he's probably not playing on songs that sound like Deal in his, you know, his quartet or in other <laughs> jazz right. shows. But yeah, I mean, Bruce's keys in the intro segment are are I thought were quite unique. They're, you know, it's that same kind of saloony style that we love in a good deal, but with a little bit of a twist. There's something more unique going on just because he's such a good piano player. He can, you know, I mean, I, some people might not want to hear this, but I think it's undeniable. Pure chops wise, Bruce is the best piano player the dead ever played with. Like, he's so good at piano. Like, I don't know. Hot, that might be a hot take. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess, okay, like, Brent brought a lot to the table. Keith brought a lot to the table. I'm not trying to demean either one of them, but, like, neither of them has successful solo albums with them as the lead musician on the keys. True. Bruce has a couple. So, I don't know. Just my opinion. He's a, he's a great piano player, and what he's doing in the beginning of this song is tremendous. Also, what Vince is doing, his backing vocals sound really good on this song. The organ that he's, you know, filling in after the first verse sounds really good. And right in that same range, the post first one solo is just like prototypical Jerry Garcia deal. Mm-hmm. Sounds he, The sax and the keys are, are really strong, he talked about, but Jerry stole the show back from the supporting cast right before the set break. Oh, yeah. He goes full Indian bead string toward the end of this song. And then Bruce starts to join into the fund. And it's actually, it's great when you watch the video because Jerry's, you know, killing it. And Bruce is starting to join in. And Branford literally takes a step back from his microphone and leans on a road case and is just watching them and smiling (laughs) for like a full minute before he gets back into it. And that's so cool. It is. It's great. And then he gets back on the horn and then it's Jerry just like, grinning like a Cheshire cat while Branford, you know, kicks it into high gear and takes the jam into a totally different place toward the end. Really great end to set one. It, this set is almost to the second one hour long and it's just a great hour of Grateful Dead music. Very few low points. No low points in set one. Well, <laughs> I, maybe the, be, the beginning of black throated wind is Begin- the only low point that I could find. The beginning of a couple songs are kind of rocky, but I think that that's to be expected when you have a musician on stage who has never played, maybe never heard these songs before. And so I think that they can be forgiven for that. And in all cases, they bring it back to where they want it to be and to a place that sounds great by the end of the show. So they're, the, any low points are very temporary. Though, you know, to use our, our good buddy Jim in Maryland's vernacular about, you know, warts and all and worthiness versus worth itness. This 
show is both it's worth it to listen to the show because it's so great but it's also worthy of the you know official release that it got um and the warts that do exist in the show i think are are quite small so set two the reason why we picked the show in the first place we start with a a pretty common set two opener but a great one help on the way slipknot and then into franklin's tower help slip frank help slip franklin's either either will do so help on the way the opening minute of this song especially but throughout the whole thing phil is so forceful on the bass he has like a little extra twang to his strings throughout the show you can hear kind of that like metallic sound a little bit more than maybe normal um it sounds really good but yeah he's he's really kind of keeping it steady in the beginning and amazingly i know we just keep complimenting him on every song but branford knows exactly where to go on this song it's great the high notes he's adding on the top just soar and they sound so great on what is a a quite good version of help on the way i think mm-hmm. yeah the saxophone is such a plus for bob on the rhythm here both in the high notes to kind of juxtapose him but then also when he goes low and helps him out i thought that was really good phil and, and the drumming are just exquisite it's a nice and tight rowdy and just overall excellent help on the way this whole suite helps slip frank top 10 number 10 on heady version for the 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 whole trio and just i mean part one help living up to that top 10 billet i agree and then amazingly the slipknot is even better i think i think that if you if they delineated (laughs) if you could do if you could just vote for a help on the way just vote for a slipknot i think this would be the the goat slipknot i think this is the best slipknot i've ever heard whoa it's it's tremendous and it's it's long they like really kind of explore the boundaries of slipknot everyone's playing together super well and it's a really great mix of like tight purposeful intentional playing and just free form jam and you know jazz funk rock fusion like it's just it's all over the place and it's great Brantford is like this might be his highlight of the of the whole show is like how well he's playing on Slipknot. I just like I can't speak more highly of this version. actually shouldn't be too surprised that you love this because you're you've been consistent in saying your favorite dead moments are when they sound like they're about to fall off a cliff and it's all about to collapse in in like the back half of this slipknot it it sounds like it's all about to just fall apart the drum <laughs> the drums are going off the rails bob and jerry are dissolving into nothing and everything at the same time and then the saxophone adds this like extra element of nervousness yeah of anxiety. just running it all over the place and you know walking up and down the scales like a coked out musician <laughs> so it, it shouldn't surprise me that you love this slipknot for good reason it's fantastic but 
then they build it all back. They kind of build the bridge back together and Phil leads the charge back into some form of organization into Franklin's tower. So, yeah, I totally agree. It does sound like they're about to fall off the face of the earth at times during Slipknot, but it leads to just for me a much more memorable and like just kind of cool experience. Right when Franklin's tower starts, Vince like backs up from his keyboard and lights a cigarette. <laughs> and when I saw that in the video, I was like, that is because like that Slipknot is like about as intense of a like musical experience as you could hope to have with the dead. It's just as good as it gets yeah. for me. So that cracked me up that he's just lighting up. He's like, oh man, I got to smoke. I got to have a smoke after that. <laughs> So I think that this Franklin's tower is played at a perfect tempo. Just for me, it is just like perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for in a Franklin's tower. Jerry sounds good. The music is tight. It's the longest segment of this suite of songs, which I think is how it should be. I think that Franklin's tower among these three songs is the the strongest as a complete song. Yeah. Same. I agree. And it's just, it's great. I mean, there's a part, kind of in the early before the middle where Vince starts to try to get into a keyboard solo, but Branford is standing right in front of him and I guess doesn't pick up on that. The fact that's what he's doing and he just supplants him and takes off on a great sax like breakout. Uh, It doesn't stop Vince from playing some nice synth stuff as the song kind of keeps going and the sound that he's playing with, it's almost like a steel drum throughout the song, which is cool. What I wrote is that um, he goes into Island time around the 17 minute mark. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it sounds it sounds really good. It's just it's interesting to get that in the mix. Yeah, it's pretty neat. And then Jerry, who by the way, vocally, he sounded excellent coming out of the set too. He, you know, after that kind of transition to the island time keys, he goes into that classic Indian beat string of notes around the eighteen and a half minute mark. The end, the crescendo at the end, the big build up everyone's on high energy it's tough to pick a standout in like the second half of this song i I think it's phil stands out the most near the end of franklin's tower there's there's a segment in the middle where it sounds like everyone is just like playing around and around and around and i really liked that i thought that everyone was playing together really well I don't know if there's anyone who like really stood out above and beyond the others for me. I just thought that everyone was playing so well together that the whole jam as a, as a complete piece was just so strong and I enjoyed it so much. If we're going to the very end of the song, like the, the little three beat melody at the end. Yeah. The hands down the best saxophone moment, like the single best moment of the show for me with the addition of the saxophone was that moment and this very ending moment in Franklin's tower where he takes the, those three beats and the equivalent on a guitar would be like a hammer on pull off. I think on woodwind instruments, it's called a trill when they do that. He turns three notes into five, like with no effort.
when I heard that the first time, I instantly was like, yep, top 10 on Heady version for that little 10 second segment alone. That quick trill, I think is what they call it on woodwind instruments, was just, that was like the single best saxophone moment of the show for me. Yeah, it's a great moment. There, it, it reminds me also of our friends on the good old Grateful Dead cast. So I'm a little bit behind in their episodes. Just like the, I mean, they're, they're this season. I don't know why you would be listening to us if you haven't listened to them, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, unless you're our parents. Shout out to you guys. We love you. Hey. Um, but other than that, I, I feel like most people have listened to it. But their season about Europe 72 is like an audiobook. It's, I mean, it's hours and hours long and it's tremendously good. And their episode about the Netherlands and specifically uh, the part about the Rotterdam show, there's a part when they're talking about that super long dark star that we've talked about where they talk about this notion inside the Grateful Dead that the one is where you think it is. It was like a motto of theirs. Okay. <laughs> and it's like a, you know, very loose concept of like, well, the one is where you think it is. Where do you think it is? That's where it is. <laughs> like that works for their improvisational style. And Jerry has this quote about it where he's like, it sounds like kind of like weird, I guess, but that's always been what we've said. And when you can work that way and think that way, it allows me to break down one into four or one into two because I can pick up where the one is and what you're saying about what Branford does with these, you know, measures, making them more complicated. It's tremendous. And it fits really well with kind of what Jerry does a lot on the guitar. And it's just wonderful. Yeah. But it doesn't sound complicated, which is kind of the beauty of it. It sounds effortless, but it, it, I imagine playing that on the saxophone is quite hard. Um, I can't even imagine, but yeah, I totally agree. I mean, he's a master of his craft. The guy's amazing. Estimated Profit is the next song after the Help Slip Frank tremendous open to set two. It's not Franklin's Tower into Estimated Profit. They keep Help Slip Frank, you know, together as one thing. And then from Estimated to the end of set two, it's a, it's a second jam. This is another song, man. The sax is just like a perfectly natural fit in it. Even if like during the parts when Bob is singing, Branford's not really doing a ton. He's just kind of accentuating the da dun da dun da da dun dun. But it's you know it's a good version. It's a there's you know typically strong soloing from Jerry, and then the piano that Bruce is playing around him is just ascendant. He's just going crazy. Yeah, I mean this is another one where band leader Bobby is just in full effect. He mm-hmm. brings them out of the jam and back into the singing on a dime. Uh, after the first big jam break and gets a deservedly big applause. Uh, So I thought that that was really good. I think this is a good Bob song, although the scatting section, we get back into falsetto Bobby, not maybe the best. (laughs) Yeah. I, I wasn't too high on like the last three or four minutes of this song. I didn't love like the the horn keys here that's near the end yeah the synthy horn that vince was doing yeah i didn't love where they took the jam near the very end the first half of the song i thought was really strong it's kind of like the reverse black-throated wind from set one where they're like the second half was top notch here i thought the first half was quite tight and the second half it kind of it wasn't for me i actually liked the horn synth 
I was I thought that it kind of fit nicely because Branford switches from his alto sax to a soprano saxophone for this song. It's really clear when you watch the video because it just like looks completely oh, different. Okay. But it also yeah. once you know that when you hear it, it, his sax does sound different on this song and Dark Star, and so I thought that that kind of higher pitched sax with the horn sounds that Vince played, uh, it kind of worked for me. But I can see why it wouldn't be a particularly memorable part for for others. So it's sad to me that this is a natural transition, but speaking of not very memorable versions, the next song is Dark Star. And I got to be honest with you, I think that this is the low point of set two. What, what I thought when I saw Dark Star and they're playing with the saxophone is how are they going to make this dark? Like How are they going to put the dark in Dark Star? And in this first half, they split Dark Star into two halves. They didn't. They never, they never got dark. It was an upbeat, jazzy, melodic first half, and it sounded nice. It just didn't sound, it didn't have that weirdness that I think you were probably yearning for in Dark Star. Yeah, I mean, I just thought that the playing was kind of sleepy, to be honest. Like, I don't want to say uninterested, but so I actually had a different reaction when I saw Dark Star on the set list because the first show that they played with Brantford, there's a really good Dark Star. And so I've heard what he sounds like on Dark Star before. And actually, the second time that he played with him, they played Dark Star as well. So this was the third time he had played wow, it. Yeah, three for three. Yeah, it's the third time that they had played it with him. And actually, the only songs that he had played with them before the show, two of there was just three songs Estimated and Dark Star were two of them. And then the last song of set two, Turn On Your Love Light, was the third. So the others were all new. And so maybe it's just like that kind of sparkling energy of discovery that he's playing all these other ones for the first time. And it sounds like it's all new and kind of cool and fun. Whereas Dark Star, it's kind of retreading at least somewhat familiar ground from the the first time that he played with them. Albeit that Dark Star was with Brent. But the second one was with this same band. So I don't think that it's like terrible don't get me wrong i think that dark star is always captivating because of what it is but just like not my favorite version there are parts that are interesting i think especially toward the end and when they start transitioning into drums the like that ending segment of this song it sounds like what the drummers are doing to kind of push them into drums it sounds very other one-y to me and uh, i thought that was kind of cool i thought bob was strumming a little bit of the other one too near the very end. So it, it kind of had that sound. Yeah. Um, it's funny you say that. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's kind of what I thought about this version. The drums, I thought it was pretty good. The, the like real, you know, pounding on the toms in the beginning, I thought sounded great. And then it was cool having it on video. It was cool watching them transition from that part where they're just on their kits into the much spacier, more psychedelic part where they're, you know, at the back of the drum set doing, you know, Mickey's on the beam. They've got more, you know, electronic sounds going on. So I thought that that was cool. I'm glad there's a video of it. What, any notes for you on drums? I caught a little Samson and Delilah riff in like about halfway through the, the first drums on the internet archive version it's delineated as drums drums 
pretty sure they meant drums space right yeah Um, i think so so halfway through the drums i caught a little samson and delilah um but no other than that nothing new okay so so then they they transition back into dark star after drums there there's a very spacey reintroduction i think that if you'd been at this show I don't know. You might have been like, well, I guess they're not going to do the second verse of Dark Star. You know, we got, we got what we're going to get. We're on to space now. It's it sounded very 2001: A Space Odyssey at times to me. What what they were doing at the beginning, but then Jerry brings everyone back toward the Dark Star theme, and then Bob joins in, then Vince and Bruce, and then the drummers and Phil pick it up too, and and then really kind of quick transition from that when they pick it up into verse two of Dark Star. Branford is still on the soprano sax for this, but then he switches to his back to his alto sax for space. Uh, any notes on the second part of Dark Star? Just that they get back into the melody, and then around the two two minute mark, it's it's actually Bob who takes like a kind of darker guitar tone and opens the door to the darkness, and then like the low keys and Phil drag us through the door for a a dark and spacey last what 10 minutes to the song. Yeah. Just about it. It does go kind of nicely into space. It, it is. I mean, dark star is always kind of a natural fit into space because in the early days it kind of served as space. So I thought that was kind of cool. This space sounds very familiar to me. Like it, it, there are a lot of elements of it that are quite similar to the version from 1990 that we heard. There's a little bit less electronic stuff going on in this one than there was in the RFK one, which was like really electronic and scary. There's quite a bit of that here. And Bruce is doing a lot of the same stuff that Brent was doing on the keys. That sounds like he's like, you know, sounds like spiders crawling around inside your brain. Um, so that was kind of spooky. I think that it sounds interesting with Bramford in the fold though. Yeah, for sure. He's playing a lot of really loud discordant sounds and everyone is. And so, yeah, I mean, I thought that was interesting Uh, toward the end. Jerry's guitar tone kind of shifts a little bit and it kind of, it sounds a little like David Gilmore esque to me and just like kind of more like it did in the beginning of the show than it had toward the end. And then in the last minute before I need a miracle, it sounds like which is what they go into after this. I need a miracle. It sounds like it could be like backing music on Miami vice or some like late eighties TV show. <laughs> it's just like kind of like driving and synthy and I don't know. Was, I liked it. I'm not saying that as like a, you know, a put down. I thought it was cool, but that was the vibe that I got from it uh, at the end of space. But then, yeah, we're into, I need a miracle. That's our first time talking about this song. Yes, it is. I love this song. This is a rockin' version. Mm-hmm. Bob is especially the first half of this version is top tier. Yeah, Bob is really bringing the heat, and also the horn fits oddly perfectly into this song. I think because like the 
on the album the piano is like or like the key sound is very horn ish like that da, 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 da. like i don't know it's kind of it just i maybe that's not right but when i saw this on the set list i my original thought was like yeah i can see that kind of the same way i felt about shakedown where it's like this with a sax that checks out in my brain so yeah i thought it was a a good version a great way to kind of pull you out of space and dark star and drums with something more high energy that's going to get the people off their feet and dancing bring the energy way up so i thought that that was i thought that was cool and i think this was a overall a, a quite good version the masses agree with you it's yet another top 10 version of a song sitting here in 91 this is number nine on heady version wow yeah and i, I think credit to the first two two and a half minutes here yeah where they are it's peak dead in the in the first half of the song yeah they're they're really on it speaking of peak dead and song- speaking of peak dead the next song is standing on the moon <laughs> yeah this is the best version of this song i think i've ever heard i mean it's amazing it sounds so contemplative it's just beautiful and jerry's singing sounds great the sax adds a ton to this song it's just great i i literally i don't even really have like too many words to say about it you should just listen to this full song it's so good jerry singing is so heartfelt and there's a lyric in this song I've always really, really liked. When we had our friend Zach Cropper on, he talked about the first line of Tennessee Jed being like really evocative to him. Cold iron shackles, ball and chain. Listen to the whistle of the evening train. He's like, I, I really can like put myself on a on a back deck in the South somewhere. And there's a line in this. I'd rather be with you somewhere in San Francisco on a back porch in July, just looking up to heaven at this crescent in the sky simple very simple lyric it's like jerry and bob hunter probably would like to be somewhere in san francisco a lot of the time but somewhere in san francisco on a back porch in july just like yep i'm there i'm with you it's a simple line but it really kind of puts me right in that place which i love yeah i mean just a great version of this song what did you like so much about it i loved jerry's vocals Um, we've talked about it a few times now but he was so crisp and poised vocally there's kind of like two crescendos in this version. The first around the 5:30 mark has Phil and then the sax. The two of them working together is tremendous. But my goodness, the crescendo near the end. Uh, the saxophone is kind of more icing on the cake in that second run up. Mm-hmm. But Phil and then Vince and then the drumming, it just build to this incredible moment and then at the end jerry delivers a like a spirited and elegant solo he's not shredding but he's treading into greatness he's not hitting a hundred notes on the solo but it just sounds musically perfect you said this might be the best standing on the moon it's number four on heady version admittedly I have not listened to the other three, but I'll need to hear it to believe it because this was, this is all time. Totally agree. I love the word elegant that you used to describe the solo. I really like that, man. I mean, it makes sense that this deep into his career, he would be able to do that, like play that way. And the word I used was contemplative, but you just feel it. It's like, 
he doesn't need to, and this is kind of always Jerry's style as much as he could be an absolute shredder. He's like, yeah, I mean, he's this kind of chubby guy with long hair and a super bright smile who's just like, he kind of makes it look easy a lot of the times. And like his playing is like, it is not like Eddie Van Halen, who is just like up there getting a workout in, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just really great. I loved his playing. And like you said, his vocal performance is also excellent. I love these late period Hunter Garcia songs. I I'll be excited to you know, hear some more. I also, I will say we've talked about dead and co a few times throughout this episode. I like what Bob does with these songs nowadays. I do like Bob here. This is one of his better, the handoffs from Jerry, this death. Don't have no mercy and death. Don't have no mercy are three of the four better ones. In my opinion that he, he does. Yeah, I agree. And another late period Hunter Garcia one days between, I think he also does a nice job on. So I, I just, it makes sense. It's like these people, whether it was Jerry in 91 or Bob in 2021, they're getting closer to the end of their lives. And there's just like more meaning and heart in these songs that kind of have that sort of contemplative wistful nature to them. standing on the moon we go into turn on your love light dave this was a tough pill for me to swallow i'm gonna be honest with you you transition from this beautiful heartfelt jerry ballad bob hunter jerry garcia great songwriting duo into a bob cover of a pig pen cover it's fucking tough i i don't know this is not like a bad version of love light and it's you know it's you know, you send the people off on a, you know, more upbeat note. I understand they don't end on Jerry ballads. That would be a downer. I get it, but just, I don't know. Well, you're not, you're not totally wrong for the first two minutes of the song. The first two minutes start pretty slow and wow. Bob sounds exhausted, AKA horrible. <laughs> but about the three thirty mark, that's where this song really starts cooking. You got some subtle sax. Bob sounds good. And then Jerry catapults us forward. The last three-ish minutes of the song. Really well done. Really upbeat, fun energy to get people standing back up and cheering again after the Jerry ballad. It's it's number 27 on Heady Version. It's the third best that exists after 1972. So take that into a little bit of context. So this um, is the number three Bob Lovelight is what you're telling me, according correct. to the version? Yes. Between that, between learning that and learning that this is the fourth highest standing on the moon, Hetty version might be on some sort of a witch hunt. I don't, I don't really know, <laughs> but... I mean, there were 387 Turn On Your Love Lights that the dead played. And this is what, 13, you said? 
30. Oh, sorry. 27. Okay. So it's still in the top 10%. Okay. Well, I'll tell you one person who really liked this version. One Jerome John Garcia, because he is smiling his head off throughout that last three minutes. Every time the camera cuts to him, Jerry's like, he's loving it. (laughs) So he was liking it quite a bit. And uh, the crowd was liking it quite a bit. Overall, this just this version is not not my favorite, but that's okay. This show is still one of my favorites that that we've that we've heard, and so this song you know doesn't take away from that. For an encore, we have "It's All Over Now, Baby Blue." What an interesting one, Dave, because the this is the latest show in time we've talked about. The second earliest show we've talked about from 1969 also had on It's All Over Now, Baby Blue encore. So from 1969 to 1991, we get the same encore song. And it could not sound more different from this version to the one we talked about from 423-1969 at the Ark. Uh, Bruce comes out on the accordion. He's no longer on his piano. And so that's like a completely different sound to have him on the accordion throughout the song. But it sounds really good. Uh, This version has grown on me the more I've listened to it. Kind of like... Which one were we talking about earlier on? Black-throated wind. It just sounded so different from like the '60s and '70s versions. Like there are only a few '70s versions, I think, but that I've I've heard and that I'm familiar with. There are also a lot throughout the '80s. It's so much more soft rockish than like the psych folk, psych blues version that we got in 1969. But um, I think comparison is the thief of joy and that this should just be viewed on its own terms. It's a completely singular version with Brantford playing it. And um, I think it's a good way to send the crowd home. I was happy when I saw it on the set list. I was happy to listen to it, even if it is a little bit more soft rocky than maybe I was expecting. I think it was a nice encore. I was digging the drumming in it. It was spirited, but not sneakery. And for the sax, I think it was a, a nice but subtle end to the show. Like, he didn't try to steal the encore. He, he just kind of wrote it out into the night and the band did its thing. Masses agree with you. They like it. Number 18 on Heady version. So okay. pretty decent. Well, that does it for, I mean, I think we can say it now that we've talked about the whole show. One of the, one of the great shows of the nineties, I mean, we're neither of us is a nineties dead scholar. That's undeniable, but man, this is a great show. And also if grateful seconds, if our friend Dave Davis says this is his top show of the nineties, I think that that also gives it a lot more street cred too. So yeah, I totally agree. All right, you always ask me the question of which song I would take for my playlist, but I know this about you, that you don't like it 
you don't like to take something that someone else has chosen. You told me that your brother used to always order what you ordered at restaurants and it would annoy you. And so I think that sometimes you feel pressure not to take what I select for our playlist. So I would like you to choose first this time. Which song are you taking to answer your own question that you came up with of what song goes on your imaginary playlist? There's actually a curveball this time to that question. So I appreciate you letting me go first. But I will go first with a twist. Okay. <laughs> the dead in the show, they have an extra guest on the stage. So we get an extra song when we pick. This is kind of like a wedding invitation. You get a plus one because they have a plus one on the stage. <laughs> I love it. The rule is that one has to be because of the dead. Like the normal procedure with this with this stuff. But one has to be because of the addition of the saxophone. Okay. So for me, the song that I would have normally taken if this were a show without the saxophone is the standing on the moon, man. I mean, this is, this is so good. And then the song, the plus one that I'm going to add on, you know, because of the saxophone, it's going to be that shakedown opener. It just sounded so good. So those are my two. What are your two? Well, I like this rule, but I kind of have a cop out. I'm going to take Help Slip Frank. I think that I probably would have gotten away with taking that whole suite, even if not for this rule. But with this rule in place, it's even easier because if you're going to force me, I'd take the Franklin's Tower uh, for my dead song. Like we talked about, I loved it. I thought that the stuff that they were all doing on it was great. And then I would have taken the Slipknot for Branford's editions, but I'm two thirds of the way there. You'd be a real bastard to not give me the help on no, the way. You, you get the help too. Throw yeah. it in. So I'm taking that. Although I must say, excellent selections by you. Probably, you. I think that those two songs are probably my favorite two songs of this entire concert. Um, but out of respect for your selections, I'll go help Slip Frank, which I think is also a great pick. And so I think that you and I combined got the five best songs from this show with uh, your twist rule in place. So, yeah, love it. This is a great show. I am so happy that we talked about it. A lot of times with these episodes when we just like choose one randomly, it ends up being such a treat. Yeah. That was definitely true with the first show we talked about from the Unidome. It was true for this one, that's for sure. So I'm excited to get into what whatever we're going to talk about next because it's going to be decided in a probably equally random way, and uh, and I'm sure it'll be a good one. Just this show is just a reminder that like the dead were so good for so long, <laughs> you know <laughs> that that '69 show that also ended with "It's All Over Now, Baby Blue" was 22 years before this. It's your sister's entire lifetime between the you know two versions. I mean, just amazing. The longevity of these guys. Unreal. It's part of what makes us love them so much. So thank you guys all for listening to this episode. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh man, I'm going to be at Riverbend tomorrow for Dead & Co. Come find us. At least one of us is going to be wearing a shirt with the logo for this podcast on it. So if you see that walking around, we only printed a few. It's almost guaranteed to be one of the two of us. <laughs> so come talk to us. Say what's up. We will have stickers that we're happy to give out. And we just, you know, love to talk to people who are listening. We obviously love talking about the Grateful Dead. And we'd love to talk dead with you too. So if you're going to be at that show tomorrow, 
come find us. Let's, let's talk dead. Anything else, Dave? No, we're on to Cincinnati. <laughs> we're on to Cincinnati. And on that note, we will bid you good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.